This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Bill English, who is the artistic director of San Francisco Playhouse. Currently running is Chinglish through June 10th, and then on June 22nd starts previews of a chorus line. I want to start by asking you, are we back to pre-pandemic audiences? It seems so, he says tentatively with a knock on wood kind of energy. It's like the last couple shows have been just selling out. And the season is generally running on budget for audience attendance. So, yeah, we're generally encouraged. Also, the pre-sales for the chorus line are, are very encouraging. Is the audience younger, same? Has Rising Stars brought in new audiences who were subscribing? Well, we haven't ever really been able to track that. There are some older Rising Star people that we see from time to time, but I'd say the audience might be, might, might be skewing a little younger these days. It seems to me to be more diverse and younger, but that's just a uh, casual observation. I haven't done any kind of analysis to back that up. Have you needed to extend any shows yet? We really don't extend. We just sort of try to guesstimate how long a show is likely to be able to sustain. Our runs go from five weeks to 13. Cashed out was five. Chorus line's going to be 13, as you like it was nine. We tend to run the more marketable, you know, the more the wider appeal shows that have a really wide popular appeal, the musicals longer. We don't really leave any room for extensions because we're just on to the next one. How do you cast? Uh, do you send something out nationwide? Now that you're a major regional theater, do you go to New York? Do you cast out of here? Where do you get the cast generally? We cast almost exclusively locally, and we always have. We've always been that company that cast local actors. And occasionally, we'll find a role which we just can't seem to cast locally. And we have a casting director in New York that we've worked with. And very occasionally, we will do that, like once every two or three seasons. Bill English, let's talk a little about Chinglish. What brought you to it? It played at Berkeley Rep 10 years ago. And from my perspective, at the time I saw it, it seemed very topical. But here we are 10 years later. China is different. Economics are different. But somehow the play feels more relevant. Yeah, I think it does, too. I think it does, too. And also, you have to remember that uh, the playwright rewrote it in 2016 to reflect shifts in the relationship between the U.S. and China. And so this play is a little more realistic and a little more grounded in fact. The first one, characters were a little more stereotypical. So I was really attracted to the rewrite when I read it, and I thought, wow, this is just great. They had, of course, they had smoke and mirrors all around that piece with rotating stages and spinning tracking chairs and things. So our goal was to sort of simplify the show out of necessity and kind of reveal the story. So it wasn't just that the show is more relevant. It's that it's a better play than it was 10 years ago. I think it's a better play, yeah. And I think our approach to it was was a little more grounded. 
I know it went to New York and the reviews were all, this is very funny, but where's the substance beneath it? And nobody's saying that about this production. So the production, the values of the production, which were to keep it very real and very grounded, and the changes in the script, I think, resulted in a more more relevant and um, relatable piece of theater. And so the audiences and the critics have totally backed that up. We've been selling out every show, and the reviews have all been just raves. So we're very, very grateful and pleased at the way Chinglish is doing. Well, you should be. I remember enjoying it 10 years ago, but this time I was floored, frankly. Well, thank you so much. I'm really gratified to hear that. That was our intent, was to try and grab the audience a little more forcefully. And I'm appalled and, you know, and disheartened by the xenophobia and racism that reflects itself in the U.S.'s relationship with China. And of course, the Chinese are up to all sorts of shenanigans of their own. It's saddening to see these two great countries just not really be able to understand each other at all. One final question on it. How did you find out about the rewrite? We inquired about the play and they said, oh, there's a new copy and here it is. And that's when you learned and looked through the script and saw the changes? Yeah. Also, the new version, the Mandarin that was different had not been translated into English. We had two really wonderful Mandarin experts, Chinese Mandarin professionals who helped us with the dialect and the pronunciations, and they were able to do a lot of the translations for us that appear on the screen. So we were very lucky uh, that we had, because the, you know, the, the newer version, any line in Mandarin that was different didn't have an English translation that came with it. We had to do that ourselves. Well, the whole thing worked, and it's a very, very funny play. Bill English, what prompted you to go for a chorus line? And if I recall correctly, there's a lot of actors at the very beginning of the show. Yeah. We were going to do chorus line in the season that got canceled by the pandemic. We, we had announced it. We were scheduled to do Follies in the summer of 20, and that got canceled. But the season we had announced for the summer of 21 was chorus line. So it's interesting that we returned to them both. And um, Chorus Line is, to me, it's just a testament to the power of theater and the power of transformation and the power of hope and dedication to your work. And it kind of is good for us to be doing as we're emerging from the pandemic, because I think it, it stands up for what, not just how unique human beings are, but what we're capable of doing when we actually work together. When you're putting together a show that's been done many times and you're trying to find your own San Francisco Playhouse spin on it. Is there a difference between, say, this chorus line, other than the actors, obviously, and a chorus line that I might have seen on a tour many years ago? Well, I think typical to San Francisco Playhouse, you know, we got our our beginnings doing very edgy, challenging theater in Little Black Box, and I love that kind of theater that sort of challenges the audience and makes them think. And so when we do musicals, we always try to bring an element of that aesthetic, of that naturalism, a focus on naturalism to the, to the musicals. And I think that's true with Chorus Line. Our Follies was more like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with songs. 
you know, and chorus line is more like we want to capture that documentary nature of the interviews so that they're less showing off and acting for him and, and really just, just being themselves, keeping the theatricality out of the interviews so that they're very, very docu-theater, right? You start out chorus line with 26 dancers and then seven of them, and they have names, and some of the ones who are what they call the cut dancers, they have lines, some of them. And they all have to be able to do that opening number, which is, as you know, nine minutes long. So they have to be good dancers. We have to wonder who's going to get cut, right? They have to be so good that you're surprised at some of the cuts. So the challenge is to find 26 dancers that can pull off that opening number, which, of course, has... The, uh, the show dancing and the ballet, both. You have to be able to do both. So, so we had to cast seven extra actors and the extra actors are also alternates for the cast if they get hurt or sore or sick. And they also, uh, in the original and in the Broadway revival, those seven cut dancers, after they're cut, they become pit singers because the, you know, the dancing and chorus line can be so strenuous but it's very difficult to sing full voice all the way through those songs. There are 17 auditioners, and then there is the director and the director's assistant. So there's 19 total, and the seven cut dancers are on top of that. So there's 26 people that start the show, and seven of them get cut. And then they stay and become pit singers in the back with the band. That's quite a, a chore for the director. Are you directing that one? I am. I have the brilliant Nicole Helfer, who's doing the choreography, who knows the show brilliantly. And we're actually lucky that we have cast Keith Pinto as the director, who is a very accomplished choreographer in his own right. And he's the associate choreographer. We have an assistant choreographer. And I have the illustrious Louis Parnell serving as assistant director. So, boy, have I got some resources, you know? And in addition, I think a lot of people don't know this, but Nicole is not only going to choreograph a show, but she's playing Cassie. So that means that we got Keith to watch Cassie and the assistant choreographer, and he helps her, and they work on the choreography together. And I have an assistant director who probably knows the show better than any other human being alive. Louis Parnell is a, just so knowledgeable about musical theater and about, about chorus line particularly. So I'm very lucky to have this incredible team. So I don't feel really overloaded at the moment. I feel like everything is going great. Um, the dances are going great. I've been meeting with actors to sort of talk through their characters and do table work. And Dave, the brilliant Dave Dabruski you know, teaches them the songs and everything is, it's a pretty wonderful ensemble when you've got 26 people singing. It's very powerful. In order to have Nicole play Cassie, we hired an alternate because nobody can really do Cassie eight shows a week at a professional level. And so we hired an alternate Cassie who will do, probably do two shows a week and also serve as kind of a stand-in so that when Nicole is choreographing the number, the alternate can be used to, to stage the number, right? So she can see it. And then at a certain point, she'll, she steps in. It's pretty complex, but, you know, we've been working on it so long to organize it. Because when you're doing something this complex, you know, 
you're really going to have to uh, get that figured out, right? I also wanted to mention who that alternate is. It's Adria Swan, is this, you know, wonderful person who is, who is willing to be the guinea pig for all the staging so that, you know, Nicole can see the staging before she enters it. And then she's also going to do the show a couple times a week. So that should be exciting. Also, in addition to the support of all the people I mentioned around the choreography and the directing, we have Nicholas Jensen as our dance captain, um, who's just the most incredible dance captain I've ever been around in terms of his detailed understanding of the choreography and willingness to step aside. And you find people out in the hallway working on steps with Nick and somebody else around the corner working on steps with Keith, Adria and Nicole in the main room working with the dancers. It's, it's, it's pretty awe-inspiring to be part of it. On the other hand, you don't have to worry about a set, so that helps. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag, but we're doing something very special with the set, which has generally not been done before. Let's talk a little about the next season and the time we have here. Nollywood Dreams by Jocelyn Bio. It takes place in Nigeria, in Lagos, in the uh, 1990s, just as the film industry is getting going there. And it's a comedy. Uh, and Margot Hall from Lorraine Hansberry Theater is directing it. And that starts on September 28th. How did you find out about it? I, I went and looked at the reviews. It opened in 2021 in New York, but the play started, I think, in 2015. Yeah, there was an earlier version at the, at the um, Cherry Lane Theater, which I saw. And then I saw the recent version at MCC. I, I'm crazy about the play. Basically, it's kind of like the trope, the Hollywood rags to riches girl works in a travel agency but wants to be a star, goes to you know Hollywood and auditions and is up against the ex more experienced actor who tries to shut her down. And there's a slick, handsome, good-looking star and an unscrupulous director and a talk show. She kind of bills herself as the Oprah of Africa. You know, I don't know how many people really know this, but Nollywood is not, was not really just getting going as a film industry in the 90s. It was happening. And they produced more films in Nollywood than Bollywood and Hollywood combined. It is the film industry of Africa. And it's huge. <laughs> I think it's just so refreshing and so outside the box to take a kind of a familiar story and putting old wine in a new bottle, as you were, give us a chance to see that story play out in a really different environment. Uh, it's also about American cultural imperialism. So there is an undercurrent of politics in it, too. To a degree, to a degree, there's always going to be American imperialism or American colonialism. You know, white colonialism is a, definitely a factor, especially in everything that Jocelyn does. And and you see it at play, but it's not like it's not like the play is about that, really. It's an element in the play. My Home on the Moon. Now, that is a world premiere from New Play Exchange. How did you find that? Uh, my associate artistic director, Mary Claire Erdnast, is just a fanatical reader of plays. And she also has been involved in a lot of the festivals around the country that don't produce. 
Like we have one here, the Bay Area Playwrights Festival. And there's a Rocky Mountain Play Festival. And there's one in um, near outside Washington. There's one in Ashland. You know, and that's the one I think she's the most familiar, familiar with. And I believe, I believe that that my home on the moon came through the Ashland Play Festival, and that's where she saw it or read it. She reads for some of these festivals, like they ask people to go through this, help them with a selection process, and that helps her do her job for us better because she's seeing all these plays coming up and the playwright hasn't even graduated from college. She's just getting her degree, her, her graduate degree, I believe, in playwriting, very young. But this play is just spectacular. It takes place in, the, in a little Vietnamese restaurant run by a woman and her granddaughter and it's kind of failing and they're not doing very well and the city is gentrifying around them. And it's about how a big business genius, recent MFA grad comes to them and tastes the pho and says, I'm going to make this restaurant great. It's a very lot of surprises in the play. It's how this consultant goes about making the restaurant succeed. And there's also some very spectacular theatrical elements at play. There are giant noodles falling from the sky, a ladder made of noodles that the protagonist climbs up out of the restaurant on. There is the giant face of an ancient Vietnamese goddess who rises up somehow out of the set to go to war with the, you know, the white supremacists that are trying to take over all these little mom and pop shops and put them out of business so they can build another skyscraper. Are you directing that one? I am not. We don't have a director yet, but we're we're uh, seeking someone that's got some connection to the culture and the story. And I'm likely to be designing the set or, or helping design the set because I'm one of the things that really excited me about the play was these these kind of big theatrical gestures set prop gestures. I'm excited to work on it, work with it. Once you get past chorus line. Yeah, well, well you know, I'm, we're, I'm already working on the working on casting and on the set for Guys and Dolls, you know, right now, and Evita. So we're working, you know, we're never doing one thing at a time because the it's like an assembly line, right? Got to keep all those balls in the air. Like I'm designing the set for Nollywood and we just submitted the uh, preliminary drawings and then i'm also talking with the set designer for for guys and dolls and we we're we're supposed to submit sketches next week for that we're casting starting to cast was i had a conference with the casting director for guys and dolls just before i'm i talked to you so you know all these elements are all working all at the same time bill english let's talk about the four shows that people probably many people have seen in other incarnations guys and dolls what brought you to it and what do you think sf playhouse is going to be doing differently for a show that's been around for over 60 years i guess 70 years we're going to do a couple things i've always been a big fan of the score and the show i did it in college and you know played like i think 
Benny South Street or something. I've just loved it ever since. But you get to it in the 21st century, and it's one of those musicals where you run into the really unfortunate gender stereotyping from the American 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was very definitely a part of Damon Runyon's writing. You know, it was very binary, you know. And so a couple of things I think I want to try and be a little bit more authentically in the Depression, New York of the mid-30s, you know, when he was writing those stories and stand up a little bit more straightforwardly for people who are gamblers and what we might describe as sex workers and religious conservatives. Interesting, we look at those people today and we go, oh yeah, that's a, that's a religious conservative there. And that's a person who does stripping for a living is kind of the sex worker and gamblers are, you know, people that need to be in GA, right? Those are angles, I, but I also want to sort of be a little bit more Harlem Renaissance in costuming style than the cartoony, everybody in red and green checked suits, you know, that's so classic guys and dolls as a almost a parody of costuming style. I'd like to be a little more authentic, although the Harlem Renaissance, of course, was, if you look at the art, the colors were fantastically vivid and powerful, but it wasn't, it wasn't cartoony, right? I want to kind of shake up the gender stuff, you know, in a way which might be unique. Some of the leads might be, you know, in drag or trans or some of the characters that are you know, traditionally played by a, a man might be played by a woman or by somebody who's non-binary. One of the uh, interesting things about the shows of that era, and particularly, say, King and I, I've seen it like four times, King and I, and each time there's a different emphasis. Once the first time was the 70s and it was an imperialist show, then later it was anti-imperialist, and later it was feminist. And I'm just wondering how far you can take a show like Guys and Dolls. Do you think there are limits? I don't know. We'll find out. I'll let you know opening night. I'm going into it with an open mind. You know, and like I say, I've already sort of talked to the set designer about not being restricted to the cartoony and the costume, or about not being restricted to the cartoony qualities of traditional guys and dolls and also talking to the casting director about trying to bring in a whole range of people who are you know it's like guys and dolls is so often done with musical theater actors who are you know musical theater actors I sort of think of this as guys and dolls meets our lady of 121st street right or motherfucker with a hat where you got the inner city people who are authentically coming from difficult backgrounds, challenging life stories, you know, and actors that can reflect that rather than people who are primarily known as dancer-singers. So it's a challenge. Uh, 39 Steps has been done a few times uh, using a lot of certain theatrical elements. Is this going to be kind of similar to that, or are you taking a new approach? Oh, sure. You know, 39 Steps is such a wonderful piece of theater, you know, four actors playing 58 roles. And it's a tribute to Hitchcock. And that's my, my angle on it is that I am a Hitchcock fanatic and crime noir 
in particular. So I suppose we're going to try to be a little less cartoony with that show in a way too, you know, but still it's designed to be done in an empty theater where stuff that appears to be just lying around is used for props and set. And it's done with four actors. So, you know, it's going to be 39 steps. Uh, Jeffrey Lowe is going to direct Glass Menagerie and we're going to work with a cast that's multi-ethnic. It's not going to just be, you know, four white people. And why Evita? Well, Evita, for me, I was thinking about, I've been thinking about Evita for a number of years and thinking, oh, we should do Evita before the election because I think it's clear that this coming election, democracy is going to be on the line in this country. You know, the Republicans or a lot of the conservatives have gotten to the point where, you know, they're trying to gerrymander all the all the voting districts and get, you know, pack the courts with, with ultra-conservative points of view and prevent people from getting to the voting, you know, removing all the mailboxes in certain districts and having one voting place that people have to travel long distances, go to no weekend. You're trying to make it as hard, you know, for poor people to vote as possible. How far is that going to go, you know? And so I felt like one of the great, probably the most important thing about Avita is that it's a play about the dangers of charismatic dictatorship and populism. And, 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 and Juan Perón was elected, just like Putin was elected and Netanyahu was elected and Trump was elected. And so these people get in power and then they, then they go about the task of dismantling the democracy in all of its division of powers and, and trying to set themselves up to be ruler for life. You know, I mean, they get elected and they try to give the legislature power over the courts. It's an old story, and it's an old story in Argentina, too. What they describe, actually, as Peronism comes back every generation or so. You know, every 20, 30 years, there's somebody, somebody, and the people love it. You know, people, people, a lot of people would really rather just have somebody who was powerful and charismatic who would just tell them what to do. The war in Ukraine is still very popular in Russia. You know, Putin's, despite all of his total screw-ups, He's still rated very highly. So I think by, by watching this play, it should be chilling and it should be a real wake-up call. Even if we think we're already woke, it should be a wake-up call to that we really are going to have to fight for democracy. We're going to have to talk to everybody can, get out the vote, help people vote. You know, it's <laughs> democracy is fragile. That's, I think, what... You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice and the book writers who I can't think of at the moment, we're, we're really writing about. There's a production that just went up at, at American Repertory Theater in Boston, and the woman that directed it went to Argentina, spent, you know, three months in Argentina speaking with the woman who had been Ava Perone's dresser and then nurse later in her life. And that she said the thing she most learned during her three months in Argentina was how right Evita had gotten it and how true it is to the historical facts of the times, you know, and having the whole story be narrated by, I'd say, if ever there was a person who had more 
authority as an anti as a white anti colonialist, it would probably be Che Guevara. For San Francisco Playhouse, when you're thinking about this, when you're constructing it, are you planning to do it a little bit more documentary style? Um, have you given much thought to how to play it specifically for that time and that audience? Interesting. You know, I was looking at sort of the, the, the population and the makeup of Argentina. And, you know, it's very much like the U.S. You know, there are lots of vast, many people are, are European. It's a very European country, but there are lots of indigenous people there. There are lots of Latin people there. There are also lots of Asian people there. And there are, and Perón was, was someone who, who actually invited the, some of the Nazi war criminals to come stay in Argentina, but he also invited Jews. And actually, Argentina has the biggest population of, of Jewish people in the hemisphere, in second biggest population of, of, of Jewish culture in the Western hemisphere. So it's, I want to really make it a melting pot, make it a very diverse cast, more diverse than we might expect from Argentina. And also I want to try to, I want to try to find somebody who will, who I can get to play the bandoneon, which is, you know, the Argentine um, accordion, because the plays never had that. It's in it. Feel like if I could get, if I could find a bandoneonist. Anybody who's listening to this interview, <laughs> when I talked to Dave about, it, I said, Dave, can we can we try to rescore some of this for bandoneon? You know, and then we're going to seek out a real tango pro to help Nicole make the tango super authentic. You know, and try to try to get that Astor Piazzolla feeling. You know really make it feel like it's really happening in Argentina. That sounds great. This season as a whole, though, this coming season, only has two newer plays. Is there a reason that you've decided to go back to those older plays, or is it just happenstance for the year? You know, that was true of this season, though. This season that we're doing now only had two new plays. It had cashed out even indecent, which is considered to be would be considered to be a new play, had this great New York track record, right? It was on Broadway. Clue and Chinglish and As You Like It was pretty new, but it's a musical. And obviously Chorus Line is not new. Yeah, the pressures of building a big audience, the pressures of keeping our box office high, the costs of this theater in terms of our rent and the cams and the deterioration of Union Square have combined to make us sort of have to consider shows that are going to be more widely popular for the last two or three seasons. That's been the case. Uh, Bill English, you're already beginning to work on the season after that. How many shows do you have more or less set and how many are you looking at? And are you planning to go to New York for like two weeks and just see shows and see what you could find? Oh, we always do that. We go to New York, we go to London, we go to Los Angeles, and we go all sorts of places. Yes, we're already working on season 24, 25, for sure. We've got one play that we're really excited about, but of course, I'm not going to mention it because we haven't got the rights yet. But thank you very much, Richard. It's been great talking to you, and I'll see you soon at the theater. 
You've been listening to an interview with Bill English, the artistic director of San Francisco Playhouse. Uh, Chinglish plays through June 10th. Chorus Line starts on June 22nd. And for more information, you can go to sfplayhouse.org. I'm Richard Wolinski on the Bay Area Theater Podcast.